today and welcome to the Anglican Dolby podcast. My name is David Brown and I'm one of the ministers here at Dolby Anglican Parish. If you'd like to learn more about our church or support the work of our church, please feel free to visit anglicandolby.org.au. Today's sermon focuses on the passage Joel chapter 2 verses 23 to 32, which says, Be glad, O people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains in righteousness. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. Threshing floors will be filled with grain, the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts and the young locust, the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be put to shame. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. And afterwards I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the survivors whom the Lord calls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Joel is a small book about a big God. He can read it in about 10 minutes, and it's sort of like a horror epic with occasional lulls in the action. Joel 2, 23-32 is one such lull, where we read, Be glad, O people of Zion, rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains in righteousness. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. It's a beautiful reminder of God's providence and goodness, but it comes at a time when God's people were suffering. Unlike other prophets, we're not sure when Joel was written. Some scholars think Joel was written before the Babylonian exile and that the locusts are a metaphor for the invading armies. I take the view that it was written after the exile, when the people returned to their land and tried to rebuild, because Joel quotes prophets who lived before and after the exile and because he doesn't mention a king in Israel. Another space where Joel is different to other prophets is that he doesn't mention specific sins that have brought the suffering that the people are enduring. So Joel is a bit of a unique prophet, but his message complements the message of the other prophets in the Bible. His is a message of judgment and hope, and ultimately Joel asks the question, are we going to live lives of despair based on our current circumstances, or lives of repentance and joy based on our trust in God. Joel uses vivid pictures to convey his message. So today we're going to look at three pictures. A picture of desolation, a picture of restoration, and a picture of kingdom come. The 1930s were called the Dust Bowl years in the central states of the USA. The drought came in waves in 1934, 1936, and 1939, but some regions endured eight years of solid drought. 
Sadly, it was made worse when people moved onto the Great Plains and began ploughing the shallow virgin topsoil, which dried up quickly and blew away in huge dust storms. There's a picture by Dorothea Lang that really captures the desperation of the Dust Bowl years. Pictured as a mother and two of her seven children who moved from the Dust Bowl areas of Cali to California to look for work only to find that California had been hit by the Great Depression and there was no work for anyone. Something similar is happening in Joel. In Joel 1.4, Joel writes, What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the lo young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Now in Hebrew, there are different names for different locusts. So where it keeps on re repeating the word locust, there's actually a different word for locusts because the Hebrew people were so afraid of locusts and they had different names for them. Years of drought followed by locust swarms have brought suffering and hardship in Joel's time. There is desolation and suffering everywhere. Most of all, there is deep shame. In chapter 1, verse 17, Joel writes, The seeds are shriveled beneath the clods. The storehouses are in ruins. The granaries have been broken down, for the grain has dried up. How the cattle moan, the herds mill about because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep are suffering. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the open pastures, and flames have burned up all the trees of the field. Even the wild animals pant for you. The streams of water have dried up, and fire has devoured the open pastures. There is a drought, and there is desolation. The animals are suffering, the land is suffering, and people are shamed. In the book When Helping Hurts by Brian Fickett and Steve Corbett, they point out that for many people who are trapped in cycles of poverty, it isn't the hunger or the lack of resources that worries them. It's the shame they feel in not being able to provide for their children and carry their heads high. The people are shamed and desolate. They are humiliated and downcast. Joel recognises that here is a natural disaster, but he calls for repentance. He tells the priests and the people to lament in sackcloth and ashes, pouring out their hearts in repentance to the Lord. Here is an important application for us today. You see, unlike other prophets, Joel doesn't mention specific sins that people have committed. We need to be careful when natural disasters happen, that we don't try to tie them to world events too tightly. Yes, suffering is a consequence of sin, but it's not the direct result of a particular law being passed, a particular political party winning office, or one group, of one group of people committing one particular sin. Joel's advice for us is not to look for someone to blame for the current suffering, but in Joel 2.13, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. We never get beyond God's grace and mercy. We are all in need of God's love. Drought, famine, sickness, all the hardships of life are indirectly the consequences of our brokenness and our sin. We can, we can ignore it and pretend it's not our problem, or we can repent and turn to God, knowing that he is the only one who can restore creation and make all wrongs right. 
Today, we often think our brains or the mind are the center of our being. But in Joel, it's the heart that is the center of a person. We often think mind over matter. If I can get my brain to think the right way, I will make good choices and live the right way. But here the Bible has so much to teach us about ourselves. When Joel says, rend your heart, not your garments, he's referring to the way people were responding to the locust plague. Sure, they would externally wail and tear their clothes to make a public show of remorse, but Joel was calling for something deeper. The heart change that Jeremiah promised last week in Jeremiah 31 is exactly what Joel calls for here. Last week, we talked about how God promised to change our hearts. This is what the Bible consistently teaches, that if we can get our hearts right, our whole lives will follow. God wants to put our hearts right, because when our hearts are right before God, we will be able to face desolation in our world with courage and endurance, which will result in the fullness of life Jesus promises. So who will fix our hearts? Where will this restoration come from? Joel tells us that it comes from the Holy Spirit, as he gives us a picture of restoration. In Joel 2.23 we read, Be glad, O people of Zion, rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains in righteousness. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain, the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locust and the young locust, the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Here God promises that he will restore and bring rain at the right time, restoring hope for the future. Everything that was taken from them will be restored. Their shame, humiliation and desolation will be turned into praise. They will have more food than they can eat, more wine than they can drink, and more oil than they know what to do with. Joel encourages repentance, which turns to praise when provision comes. Joel tells us to spend the hard times getting our hearts right so that when the heavens open and our circumstances change, our joy may be supercharged and we may worship the one who has blessed us rather than fall back into sin. But I hope you're asking how. How at this point? How can I get my heart right before God? Is it a matter of saying sorry and beating my body into submission? Perhaps you've tried that and noticed that it never seems to work long term. It's here that Joel has hope for us in spades. Look with me at verse 28. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. The Holy Spirit will be poured on God's people and he will bring about this amazing heart change we need. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit comes upon specific people at specific times. In Exodus, a guy named Bezalel is filled with the Holy Spirit, who enables him to do amazing craft works for the Lord's tabernacle. Holy Spirit also comes upon Samson, who enables him to fight the Philistines and perform amazing acts of strength. The Holy Spirit comes upon Saul, who enables him to prophesy, lead Israel and win battles. But in all those instances, the Holy Spirit stays for a time and then leaves. 
Here Joel promises an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all people, where the Spirit will stay and people will see visions of the future and will prophesy, bringing God's word to all people. Notice that it's not just select men, but women and men. Not just the old and wise or the young and energetic, but all people. The Spirit will be poured out even on male and female slaves, people that no one thought matter, matter to God. This gives us a glimpse of the radical equality of the kingdom of God. God is ready to give us the heart change and save all people. In verse 23 we read, And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How good is God that he would pour out his Holy Spirit on broken and unholy people like that? How awesome is God that he would come and live in our hearts and help us to live for him? This is so good that it begs the question, when? When will God pour out his Spirit? Well, it's here that we need the Old and New Testaments, because in Acts 2, we see the Spirit coming just where Joel says it will, on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Acts 2 verse 1 says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. After Jesus had risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, he promised he would send a helper, the Holy Spirit, who would help his people fulfill their mission. In the Old Testament, the presence of God resides in the Holy of Holies in the middle of the temple. Jesus' death and resurrection makes a way for sinful and unholy people like me and you to be made holy, which then makes a way for the Holy Spirit to come and fill us. Our second picture is a picture of restoration. In the office of church, I found a picture entitled Pentecost, Gathering Dust. What I love about it is the vibrant colours and vivid dancing figures of fire which rest on the people. Notice that in this picture, they're all together, worshipping God with reckless abandon. How awesome is that? At Pentecost, we see that God is not only calling us to repentance, but to lives charged and filled by his Spirit. It's God's Spirit that enables us to be his agents of salvation and restoration for the whole world. At Pentecost, the wimpy Peter, who ran away from Jesus, preached like a lion, and the people asked him, What must we do to be saved? Peter responds in Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, and for all whom the Lord your God will call. Members of God's church are called to repent, be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God enables us to worship God fully and be agents of His restoring work here on earth. From here, the disciples feed the hungry, heal the sick, and raise the dead. The gospel goes forward and it takes the world by storm, so that we're still hearing about it in Dolby, in Australia, 2,000 years later. Here is a picture of restoration for all creation, and here is our call to be part of God's work in our world. This brings us to our final picture, the picture of kingdom come. 
After giving us this awesome prophecy, Joel takes us to the valley of decision. Joel 3.1 says, In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Joel tells us that at the end of time, God will bring all nations down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which in Hebrew means the valley of the Lord's judgment. Then he says in verse 14, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will be darkened and the stars will no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the sky will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Here is a picture of the end. It's a time when all people need to make a decision. Will I continue to curse the God who gave me breath and life and everything? Or will I turn to him and find safety in him? Will I choose despair based on the drought, financial trouble, family trouble, or health trouble that I'm enduring? Will I trust in God who offers me hope in trial and redemption? Will I trust God who has proved faithful time and time again? Joel is serious about justice and judgment, but he's also serious about hope and blessings. The day of the Lord is bad news for those who hate God, but it's the best news ever for those who love him. Friends, Jesus promised that one day he would return to earth. Not as Jesus, meek and mild, but as judge. This is why we need to make a decision daily. Am I going to reject God or will I trust my life to Jesus, asking God to fill me with the Holy Spirit and help me live for him? So friends, the final picture I want to leave you with is also called Pentecost. For me, it really speaks of what God does partially at Pentecost and will do fully on the day of the Lord. On that day, heaven will invade earth and all wrongs will be put right. The picture is from a book called Our Mob God's Story and it's of Aboriginal art. And one picture entitled Pentecost is done by an artist, Veronica Lulu, who gives us this awesome summary of what it, what it looks like to be a spirit-filled person. She writes, It is my life to share God's Spirit, to talk about the Holy Spirit to my people, especially the young people, the families, and all our friends. The Bible means the word that teaches me to be strong. My faith is shown through my art. I use my paintings to spread the word and the message. Friends, we are living in the last days. This drought will end. Suffering will end. The world, as we know it, will one day end. But this does not mean that life is hopeless. Instead, it means the best is still to come. We need to decide whether we want to be in God's presence and be part of his reconciling work here on earth until the day he comes. God offers us the Holy Spirit. He offers to fill us with his spirit to equip us so that we might partner with him. All we need to do is call out to him and accept him today. As we plan for the future, may we be a spirit-filled church, painting a picture of restoration in times of desolation until God's kingdom comes. Amen.